Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good? Good, good. Good to see you. Uh, I want to say welcome uh, to all of you. I want to say especially welcome to uh, many of the college students who are back. Welcome back, guys. I uh, hope your semester is kicking off well. Glad to have you here. Uh, by way of that, I wanted to mention one thing uh, for Joe. He, he kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, man, I forgot to let you guys know this. Let, let's mention this. So uh, Cultivate, our college ministry, is, is kicking off tomorrow night. Uh, they meet at 6 6.30. All right, 6.30. Meet at 6.30 in the Life Center, uh, which is the building just over here. So if you're a college student or, or they're about even that age and, and, and you want to come to that, you're more than welcome to come join them. 6.30 in the Life Center. There is good food uh, and good fellowship and good teaching. So you'll love Joe and his wife, Mahalia. Uh, so I encourage you to come be a part of that, college students. Uh, again, good morning. And uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. My name is Kyle. Uh, if you've not met me, I uh, serve here as lead pastor. I want to say thanks again to, to all of you for being here today. Uh, we are currently in the middle of a series called Spiritual Habits. And so what we've been talking about comes from 1 Timothy, 7, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, uh, where Paul instructs believers this way. He says, train yourselves for godliness. So train yourselves for godliness. There's an active part in our growth in godliness. It involves training. We've said all along that training comes through what? Habits. Creating some sort of habit. So if you're going to run a marathon, you're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and go run the marathon. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning and begin uh, walking, crawling, um, if you're me, breathing hard, suffering shin splints, all kinds of things. It's going to be really ugly and you're going to begin to train your body, train your mind to run a marathon. Well, the same is true of the Christian life. We're not cut out. We're not fit from the moment of salvation necessarily uh, to run this marathon well. Uh, we are in the sense that we have Christ's righteousness, but we want to grow in godliness. We want to be putting off the old man, taking on the new man, putting away those former deeds of the flesh and living by the Spirit of God, which is now alive in us because of what Christ Jesus has done. So Paul says, train yourselves for godliness. And that's what he means. For while bodily training is of some value, he says godliness is, uh, in, is of value in every way. And here's why. It holds promise for the present life, the life you're currently living, and for the life to come, the life that is meant to be lived in eternity. So train yourself for godliness. Spiritual training produces godliness. We, we, we set out at the very beginning of this, and we said that godly habits or Christ-centered, gospel-centered habits produce gospel-centered lives, Christ-centered lives. Uh, the point we want to come back to, though, is we're not training for godliness' sake. We're not training so that we can flex our spiritual muscles or proclaim the fastest time in the marathon. We're training because we want to look like Jesus in the world. We want to be His light in the world. We're not trying to become legalist. Amen? The training that produces godliness is the kind of training that places importance then on communion with God, being able to dwell with God, being able to walk with God uh, in that way. Now, it's only as we draw close to God that we'll grow in godliness. So how do we draw close to God? Spiritual habits. It's, it's spiritual habits. Spiritual habits are a means of grace, you might say. It's given, they're given to us by God um, in other words, what we're saying is that practicing spiritual habits puts us in the regular pathways to receive God's grace by regular communion with Him and His regular channels for dispersing that grace. 
Uh, it's like turning on a water faucet and putting your hands under the water faucet. Spiritual habits, these things that God has given to us, are means of grace. They're ways in which we turn on the faucets of grace and we receive water from God uh, in that way. So uh, those spiritual habits we've said from the beginning are uh, engaging with God's Word. Bible reading, hearing it taught, singing it out. Uh, it's knowing, believing, understanding, encountering God's Word. Second thing we talked about was uh, prayer. The, the second spiritual habit we wanted to establish in our lives in 2021 is a, a lifestyle of prayer. It's being committed to pray according to God's Word, to, to understand His Word, and now we're speaking back to God. We said that prayer is, not a, is a conversation that we didn't start. All right, we're responding to what God has done in our lives. Prayer is praying to God in all things. And so we talked about prayer. This week, I want to talk to you, and it's kind of a two-part deal. I want to talk to you about fellowship with the saints. How this is our family. This fellowship of the saints is a family. And so there's two parts to this. One is the part uh, that, that talks about the way in which God has established the church. So we're going to look at how it was established today. We're going to talk about kind of its structure a little bit today, how it orders itself so that the members are growing up in godliness, so that we're growing in godliness and we're being equipped for every good work, which we'll talk more about next week. We'll talk about that equipping. We'll talk about that fellowshipping together, uh, how we're encouraging, strengthening, uh, strengthening one another. Uh, we'll get into some of those things next week. But today I just want to talk about its inception, how it came about, what's its purpose, uh, how is it structured in a way that, that it does those things, it accomplishes those things in our lives. And so... Uh, we'll get into that today. Um, let me pray for us, <laughs> as I've kind of given you a brief introduction, uh, maybe a little longer than I intended, but let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, that we're gathered here together with the saints. Uh, Father, we ask that you uh, be with us today, that you speak to our hearts and minds through your spirit, convict us of your word. Uh, Father, would you help us to follow it, help us to be obedient children. It's in Christ's name we pray this prayer. Amen. Amen. So you're going to need a little history to understand how the church got its start. I don't want to assume we're kind of all on the, in the same place here. So in Acts chapter 1, a guy named Luke is writing, and he writes about Jesus. He writes specifically in Acts chapter 1 about Jesus' final days on the earth after his resurrection. Uh, if you want to know more about Christ, his life, and his resurrection, it's a great idea to read the Gospel of Luke, which goes well with Acts because it's written by the same man. In the Gospel of Luke, he explains who Jesus is, what his life meant. He talks about his death and his resurrection and, and their significance. In Acts chapter 1, we get to see how it impacts believers. And, and so that's what we're getting into now. And this is what he says after the resurrection about Jesus. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Uh, so what's he saying? Luke is saying he's alive. He, he's writing to a man named Theophilus, and he's explaining that Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead, that he appeared for 40 days by many proofs, letting people touch his hands and feel the scars in his hands and his feet and to see uh, him physically risen from the dead. He dwelt with people. He even ate with them, which is something that just a spiritual being couldn't do. Uh, so he's, he's alive. During that time, Jesus told his disciples to wait for something. He says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit was going to give them power in their witness, Jesus says. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if you understand the geographical sense of that, what he's saying is you'll be my witnesses in Magnolia and Columbia County and the state of Arkansas and the United States and to the ends of the earth. All right, that's kind of what Jesus is laying out. He's saying it's going to start here, but it's going to spread to the ends of the earth. Praise God. You and I are saved today if you're a believer in Him because the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. It's spread to the corners of the earth. It's still spreading. We're thankful that the gospel is active, it's living, uh, and it's making people live. Amen? So then Jesus ascends into heaven. So the disciples and a crowd of about 120 returned to Jerusalem, together in an upper room where they devoted themselves uh, to prayer. Just devote themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, we find them all together in one place, and this is what we read uh, in, in Acts 2. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's just an incredible event described here about the Spirit of God coming to dwell in these men and women. An incredible event. Uh, but for what purpose? Well, we see in the next few verses for what purpose. Look at verse 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Meaning, how do they know our language? How is it that we hear each, uh, how, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, or Arabians, sorry. Uh, we hear, you get to try to pronounce them all and you just don't know how to read anymore. Uh, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. <laughs> so the 120 come out of the upper room full of the Holy Spirit power to be a witness in Jerusalem, a place where devout Jews from every nation were dwelling. Uh, as these followers of Jesus begin to speak, all of the people who are gathered in the city uh, begin hearing them in their own language. These people are speaking languages that were unknown to them at that time, uh, but languages that were known to all of these people dwelling in that area. So it's, it's miraculous. This is the gift of tongues as we see it in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 14. From the start, speaking in tongues is, is, is to speak another known language for the sake of spreading the gospel. The, the people are so bewildered, the best answer they have is they must be filled with new wine. What are they saying? They must be drunk. But how is it that they're talking this way? How is it that they're doing these things? They, why are they acting this way? They must be drunk. So Peter stands up, 
And Peter begins to speak. He, he preaches uh, the first sermon from Peter that we have recorded. He says, listen, these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. I kind of like that because Peter's saying, give them some time. It could happen later, uh, but it's not yet currently happening. That's not what you're seeing here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit and boldness, preaches about Jesus. Just an incredible sermon. I don't have time to read it all to you today for, for our purpose of gathering, but I encourage you to read the rest of Peter's sermon. Here's essentially what he says. He tells them that Jesus has risen. He tells them that they're witnesses of it, that they've received His power from the Holy Spirit of God. He tells them that they are the ones responsible for having killed Jesus. He concludes with these words. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in verse 37 through 31, um, we see their response. Let's look at it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So just an incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in it, God establishes the church. There's 3,000 souls who were saved uh, from their sins that day. Um, and that's just the saving power of Jesus Christ, the saving power of His gospel message on full display. But preaching the gospel isn't only about saving souls, though that's certainly our first hope and prayer as we preach the gospel is that men and women, boys and girls, will give their lives to Jesus Christ. If they, too, would save themselves from this crooked generation by turning themselves to Jesus Christ. But what we see is that it gets even richer. It gets sweeter. It gets more, more better uh, than, than what they had. John, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' twelve, says this in 1 John 1. He says, we preach this message to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So that you may have fellowship with us. Everybody say fellowship. The word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Now, koinonia is the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group. Now that's just kind of like the Webster's Dictionary type definition of koinonia. Uh, but it's used only when talking about institutions which have been established by God, such as the church and marriage. Deep fellowship among brothers and sisters and marriage. Uh, therefore, we can say with utmost confidence, without any reservations or doubts, that it is anti-gospel to remain an outsider if you are a believer, that you should be a part of a fellowship. The gospel demands that we exchange our life as outsiders for a life of koinonia, for a life of fellowship with one another. We need look no further than the next few verses we have in Acts chapter 2, just the progression of, of what's taking place. Here we see the establishment of gospel fellowship, uh, of, of the church, the establishment of the church 
And, and we'll see what happens here. Look at, uh, so in verse 41, you had 3,000 souls saved and baptized. Then they're, they're full of the Spirit's power from salvation. We read in Acts 2.42 this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I'll go ahead and read the rest, but I'm going to talk more about this next week. But just for context's sake, let me read this. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. Did you hear that? Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, it's the inception of the church. What we see here is that the church, the fellowship of the saints, is a means of grace. It, it, what it means is, is that when we join in the fellowship of the saints, we receive more of God's grace than we would as an outsider. That, that we're a part of a body. Uh, here are some, some marks of gospel fellowship that I want to lay out. Again, I'm going to continue these next week, but I've got three that I just want to lay out uh, today. It's been a while since I've had three points for you, so um, praise God. Uh, starting the new year outright. Uh, first is a devotion to God's Word. <clears throat> a devotion to God's Word. The first thing I want to talk about is a devotion to God's Word. The saints, you, men and women who love the Lord, boys and girls who love the Lord, should devote yourself to God's Word, to the apostles' teaching, which we have written here in the Scriptures for us. Now, uh, our brother here, Steve, preached on this a couple of weeks ago, and he covered it really well. Uh, and So neither do I have time to or much to add to the conversation of which hasn't already been spoken uh, but I want to encourage you in this, that God's Word is oxygen for your Christian life. God's Word is oxygen for your Christian life. As a Christian, you are a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. You have been created into a new being. The Spirit of God has given you life, according to what Jesus says in John chapter 3, about you've received a new spirit. It's a spiritual birth. You've been reborn. So you're a new creation, but you're in infancy as a new creation. You're, you're an immature saint as a new creation. There is growing to be done. There is life to be lived. There are things that God is calling you to do. He wants to equip you to do those things. Well, He equips you through His Word. Uh, His Word is both oxygen and bread. Amen? How many of you like bread? It's oxygen and bread. More of you like bread than we'll admit because it's you know January 17th, so uh, you're still on your diet. But... Right? Jesus' ox Jesus's Word, God's Word, is oxygen and bread. And as a new creation, you need oxygen. You need the Spirit of God uh, to make you stronger in Christ, which happens through the Word. You need breath, you need food, you need God's Word. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, as He's being tempted by Satan, He's quoting from Deuteronomy, He says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Listen to me, you cannot know God. You cannot know God's will. 
You cannot gain knowledge about Jesus Christ. You cannot mature in that knowledge of Christ. You cannot mature in Christ. You cannot put sin to death. You do not have hope to lead a fruitful Christian life apart from a devotion to God's Word. You need to be devoted to the Word of God. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, devote yourself to God's Word. Devote yourself to the teachings we have in Scripture. Learn them. Know them. Live by them. Let them bring life to your life. The second thing, uh, Mark, that I, that I have for us is a submission to godly elders. And this is part of that church structure thing that I want to lay out for you today. God doesn't simply unite a people. He does. He unites a people under Jesus Christ, the, the, the great shepherd, the one shepherd. But He unites a people under the authority of men or under shepherds who are qualified to teach His Word to His people. So in the beginning, it was the apostles. In the beginning, the apostles are here. Jesus had trained them and He sent them into the world to do what? To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to baptize men and women, that they may uh, then be taught the things of God and walk in spiritual maturity. But as the church grew, they began to establish churches. As the body grew, they began to establish churches in many different towns. In fact, many of the people who went away from Jerusalem after this Acts 2 event would have, been, would have gone preaching the gospel. Um, so as the church grew, they established elders in these churches that were being planted. So one of the things you see Paul do in Acts in his missionary journeys is he'll come through a town and he'll establish churches. And then he could just circle right on back to Antioch really easily and get back home much, much quicker. But what does he do? He reverses course, goes back through, and it says of the second time he goes through, he's establishing elders in those churches. So between Paul's planting churches, people getting saved, and Paul returning, the Holy Spirit had raised up men who knew the Word of God, who loved the Lord, and who were teaching the people, and they were appointed as or established as elders. So the establishment of elders is not necessarily a work of man. Amen? It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit within the life of a church to protect the body, to grow the body, to lead the body, to train the body. Amen? To equip the body. Here's what we see about the kind of men that are called to be elders, the kind of men that we should be looking for when we're looking for elders in a church. This is the kind of man that the Holy Spirit is producing, and then it's up to the church and the current elders to appoint those men who are doing this. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 says this, says, "...the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So there will be an aspiring in the man. There will be something in the man that's making him say, man, I think I, I, think I want to do that. I want to give that a try. There's an aspiring. Um, but that's not all there's going to be. There's, there's character about this man. Again, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, uh, and, and down through 7. I'm just going to read this to you. He says, therefore, an overseer. Now, the word overseer is synonymous with elder and pastor in the New Testament. You'll read overseer, elder, pastor, or shepherd, uh, preacher sometimes, but, but those words are synonymous. They're, they're referring to the same office. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So, while a man may grow in competency, right, grow in skill in the job. You guys, you guys took me in as pastor at 28 years old, so I'm six years, six, almost six and a half years in. Uh, I've grown in skill a lot, but one of the things that you guys affirmed from the beginning was that the character was right. The character of the man was there. Now we'll put him in a place and let him grow in many ways. I hope there's been growth. So the the competencies may grow in a man. You're going to grow up into Christ. You're going to grow up in your skills. You're going to continually be uh, developing those kinds of things. His calling and character, though, should be established before he becomes an elder or overseer. You you don't want to be trying to establish character in the middle of an eldership. You don't want to establish um, the, 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 that calling in the middle of the thing, all right? Uh, so I'm just going to walk back through that list real quick and just kind of explain what each one is. So first is above reproach. We're looking for men who are above reproach, blameless. This means they're blameless. They're unrebukable. Now, this does not mean that they are without sin, as that is impossible. It's impossible to be without sin while we're still dwelling in the flesh. Praise God, we have the hope of heaven where sin will no longer reign in our mortal bodies. But he's to be putting to death sin. So on one hand, it's without the kind of sins that derail a man's life and ministry, such as sexual immorality, drunkenness, arrogance, anger, etc. Those kinds of things that can really derail a ministry. On the other hand, it is to be aware of temptations and sins. It's to know your character. It's to know the kinds of things that you are tempted to do and to be confessing those. And as you fall in sin, to be confessing those things, killing sin, you might say, mortifying sin, and then uh, to be repentant, to walk forward in godliness. He's to be the husband of one wife. Uh, So marriage is, as God has established it, between one man and one woman, as we see in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3, the way God establishes this this makeup and setup. So uh, we're we're saying here that he should be a man, he should be a man of one wife if he's married, which means he's faithful to his wife. It also means he's not a polygamist, which isn't necessarily too much of a thing in our day, but could have been in theirs. While divorce may not disqualify the man, we believe here that divorce may not disqualify the man, uh, it should be investigated, prayed through, talked through. The man should be willing to be open and honest uh, in interviews about those kinds of things uh, before being established as an elder. Um, Sober-minded. This means he's not impaired as with alcohol or drugs. He's able to think clearly. He's able to keep his wits about him and to march forward with a clear mind. He's self-controlled. Now, self-control means that you're learning or or you're you're developing this process of being able to curb your desires or impulses. It it means you're not just giving in to a desire. You're not just giving in to an impulse. That You're you're stopping those things and you're you're knowing how to follow the Lord in those moments uh, so that you might walk faithfully before the Lord and before man. Uh, That he's respectable. This means that his life is well-ordered. 
It also means that he's modest. He's not lavish. He's not, uh, he, he possesses good behavior. It's not bad behavior. Um, he's hospitable. It means he's fond of guests, but he's also generous toward guests. He's willing to host people in his home. He's willing uh, to, to be around others. Finally, we see that he's able to teach, and this is really one of the only ones that's kind of um, like a, it, it's a, it's a skill, right? He's able to teach. But what it describes is if a man is able to teach, it means that he's well-versed in God's Word, which means he's growing in godliness. So it serves all the other ones. But able to teach means that he shows the ability and skill to teach, that he possesses a working knowledge of God's Word, a growing knowledge of God's Word, that he's able to explain it to others in settings where he may be preaching or teaching, counseling, or just in general conversations. Finally, or one of the, other, the next one is he's not a drunkard. So it's not only that you're not given to too much wine, that you're sober-minded, it means that you're not addicted to it either. You're not addicted to um, that lifestyle or, or that substance. We say that he's not violent but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. So he's not violent, not quarrelsome, but he's gentle. The man isn't a bruiser. He's not always ready to fight, eager to fight. He's not always quarrelsome. Rather, he's gentle, meaning that he's fair, he's patient, he's peaceable. He's a peacemaker. He's a peace seeker. He's not a lover of money. He's not a lover of money. Now, this one's interesting because in most of the church boards I've ever been a part, or not been a part of, but seen in churches, I shouldn't say most, many of the church boards I've seen, uh, those get established by men and women who uh, have proven themselves to be successful. Normally, they're wealthy, right? Which could indicate a love of money, but doesn't always indicate a love of money. So we want to make sure the man is not a lover of money. It doesn't mean he can't be wealthy, but we, we need to see that he's a good steward, that he's not greedy, that he's not a money grubber or guilty of coveting. He manages his household well. This one's scary for me because I've got four small children. He's an overseer of his home. Uh, in Genesis 2.15, man is, dis, is, is placed into the garden to do two things, to work it and keep it. He, he's a gardener and a guardian. He's working the ground, and he's keeping the garden. He's keeping that which he works. Uh, so that's both physically, but especially, uh, physically and spiritually, but especially spiritually. Especially spiritually, the man ought to be cultivating godliness in his home, in the life of his children, in his wife, and in himself. Um, PKs shouldn't be a thing, right? When you hear the word PK or the, the acronym for PK, you be immediately picture kids you grew up around or knew, uh, the kind of pastor's kids that those, those people were. Um, that's often a result of a man who's not pastoring his home. He's not shepherding his home at all. You know, he's so engulfed in the work of the ministry that he's forgotten his first ministry. Um, Lord, may it not be said of me. Amen. You guys hold me to that. His children are submissive. He's working in the lives of his children to teach them obedience to God, as well as obedience to mommy and daddy. Obedience in the world, right? His children are submissive. He's not a recent convert. Why? Because you can't tell all of those things about a recent convert. There's not been a period of testing. Uh, we've not seen maturity in Christ yet. There may be great promise. There may be great promise in that man. But he needs to be tested. He needs to be formed. Uh, and then the Lord will, will bring it about in due season. Well thought of by outsiders. His reputation outside the church should be a testimony of his love for the Lord. 
even though outsiders will most certainly disagree with his message, even though they'll disagree with the message, they should not be able to charge the man with misconduct. Amen? He should carry himself well, even when the message is disagreed with. So Paul in Ephesians 4 explains to the church at Ephesus there that these men are a gift from Jesus Christ, that he has given to the church these things. They are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry by their teaching, by their training, and by their godly example of, of a Christian life. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders. This is instruction to the saints. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So these kinds of men should be the kind of men that you can imitate, the kind of men you could follow. Hebrews 13, 17 through 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, the writer says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. You understand what that's saying? This is a, a verse that we take very seriously in, in the elder room. Those men are giving and are going to give an account to the Lord concerning their oversight or their lack of oversight. They are held accountable by one another. They're held accountable by the church. And they're most importantly, they'll be held accountable and are being held accountable by God Himself. And so it's a, it's a worthy calling. It's a noble thing that a man may aspire to, to be an elder, but it's weighty. It carries a ton of weight. And so we... We need, we, we covet, maybe a terrible word to use, but we covet your prayers. We want your prayers. We need your prayers. But of these men, when you find a church that has these kind of men in it, leading the church in this way, it's a, the, the encouragement in Hebrews 13 is to submit yourself to their teaching and leadership. Follow them. Let them lead you with joy and not with groaning, for that's no advantage to you. Pray for them that they may have a clear conscience and that they may act honorably in all things. This is how the church was established. Those new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to meeting together. They devoted themselves to growing in the Lord alongside one another, contributing their lives to that effort. Again, I'll discuss more on that next week. The final mark I want to present to you, and I'll do it quickly, is growth and godliness, because we're going to talk more about this next week, which is kind of my way of introducing this. So in Ephesians 4, which I referenced a moment ago, Paul writes this, and he gave, talking about Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what is their purpose? It's to equip the saints for what? The work of the ministry. The ministry that's to be done is to be equipping the body to, to do that work. So their part in the work is to equip. The saints' part of the work is to do, to do the work. Uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So as we see here, the teaching of God's Word by godly elders builds up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature and fullness of 
Christ so that you are no longer children. Rather, you are strong in your faith, able to withstand the works of the enemy and the false teachings that come with. Now, some may think that learning good doctrine is for preachers only. Or that learning good doctrine is inherently divisive among the body. But it is the people who divide the church. It is people who divide the church. Whereas the knowledge of the Son of God, both knowing Him personally and understanding all that He did and taught, is edifying and brings about mature manhood when set forth in love. You see, in a place where elders commit themselves to teach what God has said and not to teach what they speculate He might say or might have said, and where members commit themselves to His Word and their teaching, growth and unity happen. The Spirit of God dwells in that place and in those people, and it happens according to the measure and fullness of Christ. You see, Christ Jesus is the standard of maturity to which the church must aspire. He's the standard of, the, of maturity to which the church must aspire. And His fullness is the full expression of His divine and human perfection. Christ has given us His righteousness by grace through faith. Christ will grow us up as we look to Him daily in Bible reading, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. Jesus Christ... Paul writes in Colossians, is all and in all who believe. So, once again, I encourage you, devote yourself to the marks of gospel fellowship. Devote yourself to God's Word, submit to godly elders, and grow in godliness. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gathering we have now. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be men and women who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe in such a way that we follow his commands, that we follow his teachings, that we trust him for our righteousness, that we no longer try to stand on our own. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone in here, maybe watching online, who doesn't know you as their Savior, who's far off from you. Father, would you save them by your grace? Would you grant them faith in Jesus Christ that they may live a new life? Help them, Lord, to follow you. Lord, we thank you for your word and these things. Help us to devote ourselves to your word. Help us, Lord, to be submissive to godly elders. Help the elders to, to oversee the church with godliness in a way that brings you honor, not a way that would put your church to shame or the name of Christ to shame. Heavenly Father, would you help each of us grow in godliness? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.